Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, guy in the tightest pants available. (laughs) (laughs) And we have uh, we've witnessed a lot of tight pants, uh, as well as just some some bold fashion choices of all kinds in the year 1977, which we have talked about in our most recent season. And in this special bonus episode, this is probably the 70s-ist movie uh, that we've talked about in terms of the fashion, at least, and maybe overall. The music. The music, the, the whole package, really. It's, it's Saturday Night Fever. It's the disco classic. It was also the runner-up in our audience choice poll. We talked about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was the winner of our poll, and this one came in second, and we were just, we felt like we couldn't leave 1977 without talking about this movie, so we decided to add this one on as a bonus so that we can boogie our way to the end of the season. (laughs) Something like that. I wonder if Josh has ever said boogie, boogie our way before. <laughs> Josh, uh, you're a big disco fan and you were, you were begging, you were saying, Hey, I love disco music so much that I need to talk about it on a extended forum. All right. Maybe none of that happened, but when you think of 1977, you do think of Saturday night fever. And as you know, Josh, at the end of the season, if we feel like there's one or two movies that we really got to, Discuss that wasn't in our initial lineup. Uh, we'll do it because, Josh, we care. And that's how I feel about Saturday Night Fever. I care to talk about it. Yeah, it's clearly an iconic film. And and again, I think it is it's the kind of movie that when you think of the 70s, and maybe it's a stereotype when you think of what the 70s, what pop culture in the 70s is like, you think of this movie, or you think of uh, sort of the pop culture impression of this movie, and that's something I think we'll talk about, is the kind of disconnect between what this movie is actually about and what the reputation is of this movie among people who haven't actually seen it. And that um, that is a major point where it's, you know, we have this impression growing up after the 70s of what this movie is, and then you watch it and you're like, whoa, that is very different than what I had expected. Oh, yeah. That is true. Uh, I will say for the record that I, I like disco music fine. I think the music in this movie is great. Uh, and it, it perfectly fits with, the, it, it, it contributes a lot to the success of the film. And this movie was a huge commercial success. It was one of the top grossing movies of 1977. It made $237.1 million on its fairly small budget of only $3.5 million. So another movie that, and I think we've talked about this a few times in this season with Star Wars and with Close Encounters and even with The Goodbye Girl, where the studio kind of gambled on something that they weren't entirely sure about and it paid off in a big way because this movie became a huge hit. It was actually also nominated for an Oscar for Best Actor for John Travolta, who lost to Richard Dreyfuss in The Goodbye Girl, as we extensively discussed in our episode. The year of Dreyfuss, baby. The year of Dreyfuss. <laughs> also was nominated for four Golden Globes. And the soundtrack, which is a major, major part of this movie's success, uh, did win five Grammys, including Album of the Year, and also is uh, the second best-selling soundtrack of all time now behind 
the bodyguard. And so I would, and the bodyguard of course came out in the nineties. So there was quite a long time where this was the best selling soundtrack of all time. Yeah. It's strange. Cause it won Grammys in 77 and 78. You know, I know, I never know how they categorize these things. Like what's, what's eligible when, but it did do that. And then in 2004, the Grammys put the album in the uh, hall of fame for, um, you know, whatever, that means. Um, and uh, it's only one of four soundtracks to ever win album of the year, Josh. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I think as far as eligibility goes, it, it's a thing with albums versus singles. So if they were releasing sure. a, a single from this album, like the fourth single or something in a different eligibility period, then that can still win an award. You know, the Grammys are weird. They're so. the, they're the, we, I think we agree. They're the worst of all the major award shows. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's fair. I think that's especially I mean, I guess... since LL Cool J took over. <laughs> LL Cool J took over the Grammys. He hosts it almost every year now. Oh, does he? See, I don't <laughs> yeah. even watch it. Yeah, there you go. What do I, I, start, I, I like LL Cool J. We don't need to. Well, oh, I, he's a great rapper. He's just uh, not a good host. You don't oh, okay. like. He doesn't like him as a host, Josh. You don't All watch, right. so you know you can't negate that. Opinion. That's true. Well, I think I think we meant they're the worst in terms of the awards given out, and LL Cool J isn't deciding who wins. Well, so. that's what I, that's what I meant. But Dave and his <laughs> hatred true. of LL Cool J have just <laughs> bubbled to the surface out of nowhere. <laughs> He's yeah. a good man. He's a good man. He is. He's a, and he's not a bad actor either. Come on. Deep Blue Sea. It's true. Ladies yeah, love true. Cool James, but Dave Rosen does not. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, LL Cool J is not in this movie. Um, but uh, John Travolta is. Uh, as Tony Monero, who has also become kind of an iconic figure, the uh, young Brooklyn uh, teenager who is going out to discos and trying to escape his dead end life by dancing at the disco. And this movie was, was generally well reviewed. And I think, you know, again, it has this reputation and as we'll talk about as this kind of silly disco movie, that's what people think of it if they haven't seen it. But critics who did see it definitely dug in more beyond that disco sort of surface level. Roger Ebert said, Saturday Night Fever is an especially hard-edged case and a very good movie. It's about a bunch of Brooklyn kids who aren't exactly delinquents, but are fearsomely tough and cynical and raise a lot of hell on Saturday nights. The Brooklyn we see in Saturday Night Fever reminds us a lot of New York's Little Italy as Martin Scorsese saw it in Who's That Knocking at My Door and Mean Streets. The characters are similar. They have few aims or ambitions and little hope of breaking out to the larger world of success, a world symbolized for them by Manhattan and the Brooklyn Bridge reaching out powerfully toward it. But Saturday Night Fever isn't as serious as the Scorsese films. It does, after all, have almost wall-to-wall -wall music in it, and there are the funny scenes to balance the tragic and self-destructive ones. And, I mean, I think you wouldn't necessarily equate Saturday Night Fever with Scorsese, again, if you just know it by reputation, but I think that's a fair comparison. Uh, I get a few issues uh, with this take here. Yeah, Not yeah. that per se, but if you are going to compare it to those Scorsese movies, then maybe I think it's fair to call these guys delinquents, you know? Yeah, um, I think so. Also, he mentions the Brooklyn Bridge, which, yes, does connect, but the bridge in this movie is the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. Yeah, I wouldn't have. I mean, Roger Ebert, of course, not from New York. Uh, Roger Ebert's from Chicago. And so we maybe can't entirely blame him for that. I wouldn't have known either. Watching the movie, 
I also wasn't sure what bridge that was. And I, I knew because I could look it up on the internet, which of course Roger Ebert did not have in 1977. So yeah, well, we can yeah. forgive him that one. That's true. He didn't have a phone or an editor or the ability uh, to talk to anyone and get information. There's no publicist back then. I mean, I'll forgive him, but Josh, your reasoning is not sound on this one. You're an Ebert apologist. We all know it. That's true. I do, I do love Roger Ebert. Janet Maslin in the New York Times knew which bridge it was, of course, because she lived in New York. She said, 10 minutes into the movie, you can be sure that its ending will be at least partly upbeat and that whatever happens will be blunt. But that is still no preparation for all the gruesome tricks Norman Wexler's screenplay uses to get Tony out of Brooklyn. Surely there are some people who make decisions without needing to be sparred on by a serious family trauma, an exceedingly ugly sexual episode, and a friend's leap off the Verrazano Bridge. Tony, from what we've seen of him, is too proud and sensitive to need this much disillusionment to get him moving. But the screenplay has a way of indirectly insulting the character by coddling him far more than he would ever coddle himself. And I mean, elsewhere she talks about the music, but I wanted to kind of get that criticism in there, which I don't necessarily agree with. I feel like the darkness of this movie it works quite well and is a good contrast with the the big dance sequences, but she thought it was too much. I am leaning towards Maslin on this one, Josh. It did okay. feel like two separate pieces, almost halved like uh, other movies we've watched where one half is light and, uh, you know, kind of fun and bubbly. And then it gets really, really dark, takes a definite uh, different turn. And I can see how that worked for you. But I enjoyed the uh, the fun part better. I mean, I think the fun part is great and the dance sequences are fantastic. But I, I disagree that it takes that the darkness isn't there until it takes a turn. I mean, one thing, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but some of the most famous dance sequences, especially the Tony's like solo dance where everyone parts on the dance floor and he does his thing by himself, is is bookended by a discussion of abortion. Is mm -hmm. is immediately preceded by Tony's friend asking Tony's brother, the former priest, about whether he can get a dispensation from the Pope for his girlfriend to get an abortion. So I think those darker elements are always there. And I will say the subject matters there, but even that conversation is a funny conversation, the way it's had, the way it's played for like this character's ignorance, uh, Bobby C to think that he could, Pope would give him a dispensation for an abortion. So I think tonally it shifts like almost halfway through exactly. Yeah, I, I, I felt like it was more of a gradual thing rather than an abrupt thing. Pauline Kael in The New Yorker loved this and particularly loved John Travolta in it. She said, one can read Travolta's face and body. He has the gift of transparency. When he wants us to feel how lost and confused Tony is, we feel it. He expresses shades of emotion that aren't set down in scripts, and he knows how to show us the decency and intelligence under Tony's uncouthness. Travolta gets so far inside the role, he seems incapable of a false note. Even the Brooklyn accent sounds unerring. At its best, though, Saturday Night Fever gets at something deeply romantic, the need to move, to dance, and the need to be who you'd like to be. Nirvana is the dance. When the music stops, you return to being ordinary. And I think that, to me, is what is great about this movie, is that it always has that contrast between the amazing highs of dancing and being able to escape this kind of dead-end life and all the darkness that is throughout the film. I mean, that that absolutely works for me, but I um, 
think it's just presented in different ways in different parts of the film. Yeah. All right. Had you uh, had you ever seen this movie before? I had never seen Saturday Night Fever, Josh, but and, I had heard of it. Well, right. I think <laughs> I think most of us have. Yes, that was a joke, Josh. Yes. Um, but I mean, so given that, were your expectations, I mean, did you think that this was just going to be a fun, goofy disco musical? Yeah, because, you know, we grew up with, um, and we'll probably talk about that in the legacy section. It was re-released so many times with much uh, lighter versions of it that I think that's what a lot of people saw and remembered. But we grew up with, you know, like, remember the 70s? And it's like, John Travolta wore a suit, you know, and danced. And it's like, none of them, you know, none of the talking head shows or punchlines were ever about the darkness of this film. Right. Yeah, I, I think I maybe had, uh, I had also not seen it before. Um, and certainly was aware of all of that, that pop culture stuff, just as you were. I think I maybe had some idea that it it would be a little darker, that there was a little more to it. Um, but I didn't even quite expect how much darkness. And also, I think not just that the story is dark, but that Tony and all of his friends are just like terrible people. Yeah, and, they are. Yeah. And and I think they're fascinating in how terrible they are. And that's, I think, what connects it to like a Martin Scorsese movie where you're watching movies about these gangsters who are, I mean, definitely worse than Tony Manero or killing people and stuff. But they're still fascinating characters to watch and you don't have to approve of their behavior to want to kind of see what happens to them. So that I was less prepared for. I figured at least Tony would be kind of a fun likable guy and that's not really what happens here so but i i found it pretty fascinating no i i would agree that you can make the comparison of like they live by their own code type thing like there's honor in what they do according to them right but you know when you say like they're not as bad as the scorsese guys like you know any one of those characters if you know say they revisited them in the ill-fated sequel staying alive could have could have been in jail for murder at that point in time in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. It's not hard to believe. And given the neighborhood that's meant to be this kind of marginal neighborhood, I'm sure there's some gangsters kind of right around the corner here. And it's not hard to believe that that one or all of these guys could end up uh, in some sort of criminal organization that would put them in a Scorsese movie. So well, Josh, one thing you keep getting at, and like they do a great scene where they're like, the guys are at like a car lot looking at, different types of cars and you know the you know some of the the buddies are like yeah you got to be rich to get this car and none of us ever have any chance of ever being rich you know like there's not even a note of hope which as you said you get that on the dance floor and that's you know maybe a way out but um a lot of it isn't even a way out it's just a respite from the uh the hard life that they have otherwise Right. And I think that's what's fascinating about this movie, that they do the dancing, which we think of as this glorious, wonderful kind of big movie moment kind of thing is really just a momentary escape for them from their lives. And I think that's why we could believe them becoming gangsters like in a Scorsese movie is because that for those kinds of people is that way out. That's the way to become rich. That's the way to sure. rise above your circumstances is you can't do it in a legitimate way. So you do it in this criminal way and that lets you buy that Cadillac or whatever that you thought you could never get. So I think that all works pretty well in this movie. So Dave, had you ever seen this before? 
I don't think I ever had. I certainly wasn't prepared for it. Just like the things you guys are saying. I, I had no idea it was going to go in the directions it went. If I had seen it as a kid, maybe. But I, I, I always, like Jason said, I mean, it's it's the thing, you know, growing up, it's, you know, it's Travolta. It's the 70s, the dancing. Like, it, you think of it as this uh, fun, light-hearted movie, and it's so not. Yeah, I even, uh, you know, when I used to run one of my comedy shows out here and we were doing the last show at the venue. We used that image of Travolta on the floor and it was called The Last Dance. And, you know, you just think of it as like iconic pop cultural piece of art more than anything like with substance underneath of it. Right. And so I think yeah. it's a in a way, I mean, it's it's there are a lot of unpleasant aspects of the movie, but in a way, it's a pleasant surprise that there's so much more to this movie than just the dancing. Yes, I agree with that. So any other background you want to mention here on this one, Jason? There was this whole thing about Gene Siskel, who had it at number five as his end of the year list. But he there was also like uh, potentially he had said on record multiple times it was his favorite movie. And to the point where he said he saw it 17 times and that he bought that white suit that we just mentioned at a charity auction for over a, for almost $150,000. Yeah, I was trying to find Siskel's original review and I wasn't able to find it, but he did he did say over the years numerous times that this was his favorite movie of all time. So there you go. Um you mentioned the soundtrack spent 24 weeks at number 1 and was on the album charts for 120 weeks, which is pretty crazy. And yeah, I think that's about it, Josh. Well, we should just say the last piece of background, uh, as you and I have discussed, is this was originally based on an article by Nick Cohn, um, which I uh, called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. And uh, as you sadly informed me after I had read it, it was all made up. But I mean, was it an interesting read? It was all right. It was too long, but, you know, it was all right. Like, you, I mean... He lays out like a lot of the beats of the movie in it, you know, uh, yeah. accident, accidentally. But uh, yeah, it was fine. So um, okay. and then, you know, like those reviews, they talk about Travolta. I was reading this awesome book called uh, The Ultimate History of the 80s Teen Movie by James King. And it starts with Travolta. That's the whole first chapter, 77, 78, because you have this in Greece back to back. And, you know, some of those guys that you mentioned, you mentioned Scorsese, that's how Travolta, you know, saw himself as like fitting into that mold. He wanted to be De Niro and like the character, Tony Manero wanted to be Pacino, that type of actor. So the amount of training he did to get the dancing uh, as amazingly uh, iconic as it is, was was just unheard of, it, so it sounds like. Right. And, and we know that Travolta's career went in some uh, less serious directions. But I mean, I think watching this movie as his sort of first big bid to become a movie star, you could see how he would end up maybe in that mold with those serious uh, actors of the 70s. Like this could have pushed him in that direction and it just kind of didn't. Yeah, it's a very honest portrayal. He trained for nine months with Lester Wilson, who was one of these kind of like Bob Fosse uh, cohorts. So, um, but I agree with you, uh, that, that review, I think was the Maslin or the last as Pauline, Pauline Kale. Yeah, yeah. Talking about Travolta. That was a very honest, um, performance I felt. Yeah, I agree. Travolta is, is great in this movie. And, and I dare say better than Richard Dreyfuss in the goodbye girl, perhaps more <laughs> deserving of an Oscar. How dare you, sir? <laughs> Glad that we got one more Richard Dreyfuss impression in there. So we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Saturday Night Fever. 
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special bonus episode for our 1977 season, we've been talking about, I keep calling it a disco classic, but as we've been saying, there's so much more to it. Uh, Saturday Night Fever, which was also our runner-up in our audience choice poll. And I think that's the main, the main kind of thread here for us is the surprise of watching this movie and what it's really about versus what its reputation is. I think you're right. And, you know, for me, what I was saying is that first hour, I was like so enthralled and loving it. And I thought it was so funny. There were so many jokes and um, this kind of relationship between uh, Tony and his boys, like, you know, very recognizable. And obviously the dance sequences are mesmerizing. So that's what I thought the movie was. And then like uh, an hour in, it's like, eh. Here's some violence. Here's some rape. Here's some uh, horrible behavior. And, uh, you know, as we talked about on Slapshot, there's a lot of uh, ugly language, ethnic slurs, stuff that was real at the time and, you know, was, I guess, accepted. And uh, it's th- that's jarring enough, but uh, it gets to a place of uh, real uncomfortability in that second half. Yeah. And see, again, I feel like, I mean, it, it does escalate in that second half, but I felt like right from the start, there was a lot of discomfort and there was a lot of darkness to these characters. And it wasn't hard for me to see them going in the direction that they went in, in the later part of the movie. Like you said, there's those those ethnic slurs that are really harsh. And I think unlike in Slapshot, which uses that homophobic language as a punchline, and I think that as the audience in Slapshot, you're still meant to find that stuff funny. I think in this movie, it's not using it that way. It's using it to show you the kind of uh, danger, yeah, of of those characters, and and to use it as a as a critique, or at least as an honest portrait of the complexity of people in this neighborhood, in this uh, in this world. And so, I mean, there's a scene very early in the movie where they walk, they're just kind of walking on the street and they encounter this gay couple just minding their own business and they just hassle them for no reason. And yeah, they're not beating them to a pulp or something, but they're clearly just harassing these people, uh, you know, with no provocation at all. And I think it's, and that's early in the film and it's easy to see that escalating into violence that comes later in the film. Sure. And I mean, you know, it's not just that, like, I mean, one thing we do have to address, like, it's a hugely misogynistic film, you know? And I mean, again, I don't know that it's a misogynistic film. I think it's a film about misogynistic people. That That's fair. Mm. That's totally fair. That That's a more apt way of describing it. But it's, it's accepted. And, you know, I guess in, um, you know, Italian macho, you know, kind of young stallions of the 70s, that, that was not a big surprise. But what I'm saying is it definitely was the way from the first half, like which was somewhat shocking to the second half, which was like totally shocking. Like, you know, it's one thing when Travolta like is talking to uh, Annette. Right. And, you you know, that's her name. Right. The, uh, yeah. D- the Donna Pescal character. Yes, yeah. I mean, and it's it's shocking, but it's really I mean, I, I admit I laughed when he was like, are you a good girl or are you a cunt? You know, like it's just so blunt and like street as the way they spoke. But then obviously that stuff that happens with um, his sidekicks and her is that is that is hard to watch. 
Right, but I think what the movie is showing you is that what happens there is a natural progression from him saying that kind of stuff to her. And so to me, it made perfect sense that it went in that direction. Like, yeah, it's hard to watch and it's uncomfortable and you want to like Tony. You know, you want to feel like Tony is a good guy because he's charismatic and he can be funny and he's a great dancer, but he maybe isn't a good guy. And maybe he's slightly less of a terrible guy than his friends who gang rape Annette at the end of the movie. They, they, but yeah. that doesn't really give him a whole lot of credit. No, and you know, he basically assaulted Stephanie as well. Yeah. You know, to mm -hmm. the point where they're joking about it. This is the first time I've ever let a rapist into my apartment, you know? Uh, and you wonder, like, um, you know, uh, was was rape just not taken seriously at that time in those areas or something? I mean, yes, I'm sure that is the case, but I think the movie takes it seriously enough that you understand the consequences of it. And and when she says that line, she says it like it's a joke, but clearly she's yeah. a bit uncomfortable and she understands what happened there, you know, as a woman. I, I Somewhere, I, I maybe it was just a letterbox review, but someone was talking about how this movie doesn't, it has all this sympathy for the male characters and that even their terrible behavior, you kind of almost understand it because of where they come from, the, the poverty, the neighborhood they're living in, their lack of options, but saying that the movie doesn't have sympathy for what the women go through. And I completely disagree. I think this movie has a lot of sympathy for the female characters, even if they're not the main characters. But I think the movie really like understands the consequences of the things that happened to Annette and to Stephanie um, here. And so I thought that was interesting. Like, yeah, it kind of piles on there toward the end, I can understand that. But but I think the movie is is very aware of the behavior of these characters. And, and at the time, I think viewers were, there was a line in Ebert's review elsewhere where he says something like, you know, this shows that feminism hasn't yet reached Brooklyn or something like that. Yeah. And so I think people understood what this was saying. Well, I would say if I was gonna look at the other side of that coin, you know, we are seeing this all through that male point of view to the point where after that gang rape, you know, he says, you know, he goes, you happy now and that like, you know, he's victim blaming and everything. Sure. You know? So, right. Mm -hmm. But also those characters, like she basically her whole purpose in the first half of the movie is like, Tony, I love you. Tony, I'll let you fuck me. Tony, I'll do anything for you. Like there's no real um, point of view to that character beyond that, I don't think. So I can see where someone would say there's nothing uh, sympathetic or deeper to the character than that. Right. Well, certainly she's not as well-rounded a character as Tony because she's not the main character right, in the movie. Right. Um, I think Stephanie is a more well-rounded character who has is more of a central character than than Annette is. But but you're right. It does the movie does come from the place or the perspective of those male characters. They're the ones that are driving the story that are central to the to the film. And, and I think because Tony is so charismatic and because he's such a great dancer and there's long sequences, I mean, I think we're almost going in the opposite direction here. We're talking so much about the, the dark story. Like the dancing is a huge part of this movie too. And all of the pop culture stuff that people think of is still a major, major part of this movie. So because Tony is so fun to watch as a dancer, maybe as a viewer, you might be inclined to forgive him for these terrible things that he says. And I can see how that is a little problematic within the film, but I don't think the movie is not sympathetic to what the female characters are going through. I think you and I aren't far off. We're just seeing it in a different light uh, in the same way that you said that like, Hey, 
this is a natural uh, progression of this type of behavior. And I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying it's it just was so jarring to me, you know. So right. another another thing about that that first half where it's maybe funnier and lighter. Sometimes, especially back then, I feel like especially for like maybe our generation in high school and stuff like that, some of the worst people were so funny, like at in the moment, you know, and but the shit bags that they turned into as they probably grew older. I think this movie really kind of shows that. Yeah. I agree. And, and as a comedian, Jason, I'm sure you know about uh, terrible people who are funny. has that been a thing in comedy recently i don't know um no but you know i i mean maybe it's just that the interactions are i think right away hilarious and maybe in the second half they're not as hilarious they get a little more serious even in their interactions you know because you know like i was laughing as early as you know when he goes home and the mom's like where you been? And the dad's like, your mother asked you where you been? Where were you? And then she's like, your father wants to know where you were. Right. You know? Yeah, and that's a like, great scene. Yeah. It was it's all hilarious. So, yeah. and like, she won't call the son the priest because she wants him to call her. And it's like, it's a very Italian guilt thing, you know? Um, so, I, I don't know. I, it did change tones, but you're right. Like, we definitely have to focus on how good the music was how well-placed it was and just how Travolta pops off the screen when he is dancing. Yeah. I mean, the music is iconic, obviously. I mean, the songs, even aside from the movie are hugely, hugely famous songs. I mean, you know, staying alive and night fever and more than a woman. I mean, all of these are like classics of this era. Um, And right away, I mean, the movie starts with this scene that is also iconic of Travolta strutting down the street, uh, to staying alive and the way that it's shot. And I know John Badham as a director isn't really particularly notable. And he was a last minute replacement here for John G. Avildsen, who directed Rocky and was initially supposed to direct this movie and maybe didn't have a lot of personal style here. But whether it's him or the cinematographer, like the way that that sequence is shot and the shooting like Travolta's feet and looking up at him so that he's sort of this almost like giant, larger than life figure. Like right away, I turned this on and I was like, wow, this is great. This movie is gonna be great. And I think what's also great, and that's something that doesn't come up as much in the the iconic nature of that scene, is that he has so much charisma and so much confidence and he's like this disco king walking down the street. But what is he doing? He's carrying a can of paint to his shitty job at a paint store. And I think that's a great contrast. Yeah, that's hilarious. And also that he doesn't care how late he is and eats two slices of pizza on top of each other. Like, you know, it's still his day. I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that because like, I'm looking at it and I'm like, you know, I, it's it's kind of out of place with the rest of the movie, right? We never revisit. I mean, we revisit the paint store, but he also harasses a girl on the way too. So. Yeah, he does. I mean, in, 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 and again, in a sort of mild manner, where he just walks up to her and then she walks away and that's it. But you can see that as the spectrum of behavior in this movie. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I'm I'm not disagree. I I wanted to bring up one other song, which. Uh, I thought was so I know it was written by the BGs, but this version, well, uh, the Yvonne element, if I can't have you, that song just pops, man. And it pops hard in the 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 style of the disco and everything. Like just really good stuff. So I mean, we're not far off from each other, Josh. I think uh you just have uh a different amount of enthusiasm for the film than I do. Yeah. I mean, and I I I I'm not saying that this is like a perfect movie by any means, um, but I think 
that opening made me think like, this is just going to be great. And I think there's a confidence, not only in the Travolta character, but there's a confidence in the filmmaking in that opening that just like draws you in immediately. I mean, and, I, and I'm not against that. I said like the whole first hour, like I was in love with, so to speak, you know? Yeah. And, and Travolta's awesome to the point where he was so confident that, you know, he recut those dance scenes on his own towards the end because they were all shot in close up, And he felt like, the audience had to see that he was doing the dancing on his own. And and maybe that's ego, whatever, but also you want to see those moves in full and you want to see the reaction and how it kind of uh, displays across the floor. So um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in this film, obviously. Yeah. And, and all of, I mean, I just, I kept talking about the opening there, but the dance sequences in the club, the 2001 Odyssey club, um, with that that light up dance floor, which is another iconic element of this movie, are just are yeah are mesmerizing. And Travolta is is so great. Whatever training he did, it paid off. You believe that he is like an absolutely you know he's the best dancer in Brooklyn. Like you can one hundred percent believe that. So those scenes are great, and I feel like you can watch those scenes just on their own, almost as music videos, and still like yeah. you won't get the full picture of the movie, but you would still really really enjoy it. So let me bring up two other things that uh, I want to talk about. One, the Fran Drescher scene, which if any, what if there's any female character displaying uh, confidence, it's her, I'd say, <laughs> where she's just kind of walking up to Tony and she's like, are you that, are you that good? Or are you as good in bed as you are on the dance floor? And she kind of is like grabbing his butt as they go out there. And we've talked about her before. I just love these younger Fran Drescher performances. We talked about her in UHF also. Yeah, she's she's great in that. I mean, it's a, she's not an important character at all. I mean, she just has that one scene, but she definitely makes an impression. And I think that's part of maybe, you know, maybe it's the actors. It's her and it's Donic Pascal and and what's her, is it Karen, Karen Lynn Gorney, who plays uh, Stephanie? You know, they bring something extra to these roles that are maybe not as as vividly written as the male characters are. So I agree. Yeah. Fran Drescher. Very good. You know, and, I don't, I don't know if I love uh, Karen Lynn Gormy as Stephanie. I mean the, the, you know, as you know, I like to read up on potential alternate casting. The names brought up were Jessica Lang, Carrie Fisher, Kathleen Quinlan and Amy Irving. And I don't know, maybe that would have pushed that character a little further for me. Yeah, I don't know if Carrie Fisher would be right for that part. I mean, and Carrie Fisher is great, as we've talked about in our Star Wars episode. But um, yeah, Karen Lynn Gorney is not, I mean, she's not a well-known name, certainly. And weirdly enough, this was a massive hit. And following this, she left acting for 14 years. Yeah, so that yeah. was kind of a weird thing. Um, hmm. But I think that character, and what I like too about that character is that we see her first and she seems to be this very worldly like knowledgeable person, more intelligent than the uncouth Tony. And she's trying to show off her knowledge about stuff. And you get the sense without the movie hitting you over the head about it, that she's just as dumb as Tony. And mm -hmm. when she's talking about going to see Romeo and Juliet, the movie, the Franco Zeffirelli movie, and he's like, oh yeah, the Shakespeare, I know that. And she's like, no, 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 Franco Zeffirelli. Like she doesn't even know who Shakespeare is. <laughs> and and I thought that was, that was great is that she, like Tony, is trying to be better. And Tony is trying to kind of impress people because he's a dancer and she's a dancer too, but she's trying to impress people that, oh, she's sophisticated and she lives in Manhattan and she knows famous people or whatever, but she's a fraud too. She is because she lives in Manhattan because of a 
entanglement to use a Jada Pinkett Smith term <laughs> with one of her richer coworkers. And, you know, she's always bringing up the famous people that she meets in her job. And, but it's interesting how nonchalantly Tony can brush a net off to go to her. And like, there's really no consequence of that from the protagonists, I guess, point of view, you know, if anyone has the consequences, it's a net, you know, Right. And I think that's a representative of the the sort of misogynist culture here that Tony can do whatever he wants. And like you said, he has essentially no consequences where Annette, she doesn't even do anything, but she, because Tony rejects her, she ends up in this position. Um, and that's, that's kind of the culture there. So I think that's another uh, interesting portrayal of things. Uh, I guess, I mean, yeah, it's a tough one to figure out. Let's just right. go with that. So, yeah. and the other thing I wanted to bring up was the, um, the gang fight where they go and take care of the barracudas, you yes. know, where they're just like crashing through a, uh, a hangout. Like they're just pulling a car through a window, which they would all be in jail for that. I would think, you know, and they have this big gang fight. Uh, and the funny thing is afterwards they go visit Gus in the hospital and, you know, we got the barracudas back for you. And like, you know, he's like, Oh yeah, I'm not exactly sure it was them who attacked me. You know, that was hilarious. But the gang fight without any repercussions, like we've kind of talked about New York at this time period and just how crime ridden it was and what a low point the city was at. So maybe that could have got they could have gotten away with that. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I believe that, that there's just so much crime that it's not even registering necessarily that these people are beating each other up or whatever, or brandishing knives. I mean, no one got killed. So, hey. That's it doesn't rise to the level of the cops caring about it, apparently. Well, well, speaking of people being killed, did you have any feelings towards that uh, ending uh, with Bobby C where he's kind of being a risk taker on the bridge like the guys did earlier? And, you know, he's uh, what do you think? Was that a suicide or what do you think? I mean, I think it's one of those things where if it's not if it's not a suicide directly, it's him wanting to kind of push that, like put himself in a position where he might die. And I thought that was another outgrowth of the character of the earlier moments. I mean, especially that conversation he has with Tony when Tony's about to borrow his car and take it to help Stephanie move. I thought, oh, this guy's going to commit suicide. And <laughs> it just seemed obvious to me. So I, I, I felt like it didn't surprise me that that happened. Yeah, I, it didn't surprise me either. But was that a good thing or a bad thing that that that, that it didn't surprise you? Well, I mean, I think it's it's good in that it it it's doesn't come out of nowhere. Like maybe you know you're arguing that some of these things are so jarring. To me, it was like oh, I understood why that happened. It wasn't just done for shock value. It was something that was established with this character over the course of the movie. So so I think that's overall is a good thing. All right. Well, I think. Uh... You have mentioned many good things of this film, Josh. Good yeah, work. it's good. So, I one other character I want to mention is the the brother, the ex priest brother. Frank. Who, yeah, who quits the priesthood and then moves back home. And I wasn't sure. Were we meant to think that maybe Frank was secretly gay? I didn't. That's what I thought. You did think that. I didn't think yeah. that, but I I think that's a fair interpretation. But I did think it was amazing how um, the mom. You know, her big concern was how she was going to tell her friends that the son left the priesthood. You know, that was the big concern there. Right. And then they blame Tony for it somehow, because, you know, these 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 
Yeah, what, what did you put in his head? What kind of nonsense did you put in his head? <laughs> right, it's all this this sort of passive aggressive guilt that is part of this family. This movie very much also reminded me of a movie that we talked about in our 89 season, uh, True Love, the Nancy Savoca film. I thought about that a lot as well. And I love, I, I as you know, that was one of my favorite movies that we've watched. And, you know, we've already said it. I I grew up in a very mixed neighborhood in North Jersey. And the, the Italian guilt... Uh, that my friends had and the Jewish guilt that I had, not not too dissimilar. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So do we uh, do we want to rate this out of five uh, bell bottoms or five platform shoes or something like that? Five disco balls? Five disco balls. There you go. What are you going to give it, Jason? I give it three and uh, three's good, but it was close. The first hour was really close to five for me. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it really fell off for you then. It did fall um, off. I have to admit. So. Yeah. I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five. I, I thought it was enjoyable throughout and because of, I think in part because of the way that it surprised me, I, I quite liked it. So Dave. I'm giving it four guys. I, wow. I love this movie. It was great. Nice. What? What? <laughs> Is that is that your impression? That's the, the extent of what you got there, Mr. Carter. What? Yeah. What? 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 This ball. I did it a bunch of times on this thing. Yeah, gosh, you know, you know. did, you did. You kind of, you kind of worked it in smoothly. So, much like Tony Monero, quite smooth. So, um, <laughs> we'll come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of Saturday Night Fever. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this special bonus episode of our season on the films of 1977. We've been talking about Saturday Night Fever, and I think we've kind of addressed the legacy of this movie in a lot of ways because the major legacy is its presence in pop culture and its perhaps misleading presence in pop culture as this fun disco musical, which is really not quite what it is. Yeah, but I read this cool quote from Travolta who was saying like, you know, to me, he was like, yeah, disco was like 73 to 75. So when I got this script, I thought it was like a humorous look back at that time. And instead I reignited the entire trend, you know? So it's kind of funny to think about how influential and how huge disco was. And it really was only like seven years, you know, disco demolition night was 79 or 80. And that was kind of the end of it. But like, for something with that short of a time span being the most popular thing, like really, really interesting. Yeah, and I think disco went through this period where you talked about that demolition night where it was it was derided and it was mocked. I mean, in large part, I think that that was, there are lots of elements of misogyny and homophobia in why that happened, but overall it was still kind of a punchline for a long period of time. And now, I mean, I feel like if you listen to so much dance music right now, and, highly, and he, highly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and even over the last 10 years or so, yeah, disco, I mean, uh, disco is hugely influential. There's uh, Kylie Minogue's new album is called Disco, which uh, I, I love Kylie Minogue, so shout out to that. But um, Kylie obviously uh, has been around since the 80s, but even younger pop stars, like disco is a major element of what pop music has sounded like for yes. 30 years. Dance music, club music, all that stuff. I totally agree with that. And to go along with that, you know, the Bee Gees, I think if you just know them as uh, like through this, you would think like this was all they did. But they have a lot of really good songs that are outside of disco, you know, kind of 
soft rock or 60s rock and, you know, just kind of interesting stuff like that. Let's not forget about the Wyclef Jean song, We Trying to Stay Alive, which was <laughs> maybe, maybe one of the I tried, one of the I tried to forget yeah, about that. Yeah, I was hoping we could forget about that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, obviously you're, you're right about the Bee Gees, but this, of course, took their career to like an insanely new level um, to the point where it was almost bad for them because they were so ubiquitous that people turned on them. I think they were probably always popular, you know, throughout the world. And now Barry Gibb is like regarded as one of the great songwriter producers of all time. Uh, Josh, since you mentioned Kylie Minogue, you'll be happy to know that uh, when Bruce Springsteen toured Australia, he covered Staying Alive and Barry Gibb was so touched by it that he covered I'm on Fire when he went back and toured Los Angeles. That that is nice. I don't know what that has to do with Kylie Minogue, but um, I just wanted to mention a musical artist I like. Oh, all right, fair enough. Um, <laughs> and talk like Eric Gibb for a minute. <laughs> oh man! All right, so many impressions. That's how um, Eric Gibb talks. <laughs> uh, we have to, of course, mention. Well, you did briefly mention the sequel, "Staying Alive," that came out in 1983, directed by Sylvester Stallone, which I have not seen, but is generally considered like one of the worst movies ever made. It almost you almost want to watch it because of how bad it's supposed to be. But if we did cover 1983 Austin awesome movie year, we couldn't put that as a flop because it made like 125 million dollars. Right. It was a successful, it was successful commercially. Although I'm sure, I mean, that's, that's like a little more than half of what Saturday Night Fever made. So I'm sure they were hoping for more than that, but that's still, that's still good. But yeah, from a critical standpoint, that movie did very, very, very poorly. And I, again, I think reputation wise, it's often on lists. Of, yeah. It's know, a punchline. Yeah, it absolutely is. You know, Josh, I want to bring up something and I got to yes. take, I'm going to take myself to task, Josh. Okay, please. So, um, cause I keep saying how much I love that first hour and how the tonal change was a little too abrupt for me. But as you know, this movie was re-released in 1979 with like a PG shine to it. So they took out all like the hard edges and then again in 1980 on a double bill with grease and then, like, they even PG'd it up more for TV. And I think I would hate those versions of it, even though I just argued against all of that. So shame on me, Josh. Shame on me. Yeah, and that seems like it would get rid of so much of what makes this movie interesting. And I think there was a quote from one of the producers who said that it, it ruined the movie yeah. to do those edits. Yeah, Stigwood. Um, yeah. But I think that was part of just just like a lot of these things is that it was a consequence of the runaway popularity of this movie that it, it, it had to be edited down so that it could reach even a wider audience and all the teenagers who went and bought those Bee Gees records but couldn't go see R-rated movies. Right. You know, they they had to have their PG version. And so, you know, the the sort of sanitization of the disco pop culture popularity even hurt the movie itself. It must have seemed though between when you went from this to Greece that the John Travolta train would never end because man, you can't get bigger than that back to back. Right. And, and of course it, it did end. And, and I think in a weird way, the, the staying alive, which is six, uh, six years later is also sort of representative of how Travolta's career went from this, the promise here of how he could be, you know, a serious major star like Al Pacino or Robert De Niro and work with Martin Scorsese to him being this cheesy teeny bopper figure and then his career kind of taking a nosedive uh, in the late 80s until he was revived, 
By Look well, Who's Talking, the talking baby movie. Right. The well, those movies right. were very popular, but I, I was going to say Pulp Fiction, yes, where he right. was he was revived, I mean, in terms of critical respect. And of course, Pulp Fiction plays pays homage to this in the dance contest sequence with Travolta and Uma Thurman in that movie. Tarantino is certainly very aware of that. And Travolta, I feel like Travolta has gone through multiple periods of like having a quote comeback and uh, reaching a point where critics respect him again, only to just ruin it himself. It's kind of, you know, I, in when it, in the 90s, one of the films I liked, I think, did we talk about this yesterday uh, when we were talking about the movie? We, we I liked Face Off and Travolta and Nicolas Cage are kind of similar in what they'll do. And by that, I mean, they'll do anything at this point. <laughs> yes, I don't know if we did talk about it, but I agree with you that I love Face Off and Face Off is a great example of the Travolta and Cage sort of like over the top craziness where it really works and it's like the right thing for the movie. Um, and mostly it's not. I mean, Travolta and Cage have very similar careers and especially right now where, like you said, they will do anything. And there's dozens of these terrible straight to video movies that they both star in that they just churn out because they seem to have these compulsions and whether it's a need to make money or a need to just work no matter what the role is, they will just accept anything. And I think that tarnishes their reputations. I think Travolta's last great year was 98, Primary Colors, The Thin Red Line, and A Civil Action, which are all good films. And I think, didn't he get an Oscar nomination for Primary Colors? Uh, it's possible. But yeah, those are those are all good. I, how much is he in The Thin Red Line? I mean, I- it's How much is anyone in The Thin Red Line, Josh? Right. It, it, well, exactly. That's what I mean. <laughs> it's been a while since I saw it, but I know that's a movie where the actors are sort of, as is often the case in a Terrence Malick movie, where the actors are sort of secondary- they're, they're of equal importance to like the grass in a Terrence Malick movie. <laughs> and I love Terrence Malick. I do. Josh, um, what do you think though? Because I mentioned Luke who's talking. He's had a few of those like hits where you're like, what? Like wild hogs, right? You know, you're like, what? Yeah. This is a big hit. This is, why is this happening? Yeah, because he's he's obviously willing or eager or whatever to take on these super cheesy Hollywood projects. And sometimes those reach their audiences. I mean, there were three Look Who's Talking movies and I'm pretty sure he was in all three of them, so. Yeah, I like the first one. And, you know, he did, I think the last acclaim he got was uh, the American Crime Story where he played Robert Shapiro in the OJ thing. Did you guys watch that that or? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I I watched part, I wasn't a big fan of that series overall, but um, he uh, is very Travolta in it. Um, and which is, it's funny. Cause like, I mean, he gets, you're right. He got a lot of acclaim for that, but I felt like his performance wasn't necessarily all that different from a lot of these yeah. performances that get trashed. I but. still think he could, I think he's got a few left in him, man. I think he's I, got a few left in him. I hope yeah. so. We mentioned, I, I mentioned a little John Badham, the director here, who was a last minute replacement for John G. Avildsen. And this movie has a great visual style, but John Badham himself is not a particularly notable director. He had some more hits in the 80s. He directed Short Circuit and War Games with Matthew Broderick, but he's not a particularly well-regarded director. And he's worked consistently, but mostly now he works in TV. And I feel like this was probably the height of his career in terms of quality. Yeah. um, Nick of Time, good movie from the 90s he did with... uh... Johnny Depp and Christopher Walken. And, and like you said, he, you know, you mentioned War Games, you mentioned uh, Short Circuit. Those are two big ones. But uh, also, like you mentioned, he's worked like nonstop in TV for the last 20, 30 years. So good good for him, man. 
Yeah, I mean, he's obviously had a perfectly successful career, and and those two movies, especially Short Circuit and War Games, were huge hits. But I think the on a sort of filmmaking or artistic level, he never really he he was more of a journeyman kind of guy. I think one of my favorite things I read about as uh, was the Chilean movie Tony Manero. Did you ever see this movie? I haven't. I like that director, though, Pablo Lorraine. I've seen some of his other films, but I have not seen Tony Monero. But that does sound it was it was very well reviewed. Yeah, it, it won out. Torino, won the Torino Film Festival and was Chile's kind of um, selection for the Academy Awards to be considered. And it was just about a guy who was obsessed with Tony Monero and wants to win a Tony Monero lookalike contest. And like, it sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, I think he's a very interesting director, Pablo Lorraine. So I would love to check that movie out. I mentioned Karen Lynn Gorney for some reason. This was the moment that she decided to quit acting um, after being in a massive, massive hit. Um, And she took 14 years off. She eventually came back in the 90s, but never had a big career. And she still works, but mostly in these kind of low-level B-movies. Yeah, but but Donna Pascal has worked pretty consistently throughout the last three decades. And she was actually on All My Children as the first lesbian on a daytime soap opera as Dr. Lynn Carson. So that's pretty cool. 1983. Yeah, she works steadily in TV. I remember Donna Pascal always as the mom on Out of This World, the sitcom about right. the, al- the alien teenager, which I watched a lot as a kid. <laughs> So you're really yeah. letting us in on all your secrets between that and Kylie Minogue, aren't you? Hey, Josh? man, I don't I don't I don't have it. There's not secrets. I'm uh, I'm not ashamed of watching. We out like of this what world. we like. Nor should yeah. you be, Josh. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure out of this world world is terrible. I mean, I haven't watched it since I was like 10 years old. So I want to say one other thing, though, Josh, this came out at Christmas uh, 1977. Yeah. So this Close Encounters and Star Wars. I mean, they were all like Christmas movies, right? Yeah. So like, was anyone doing anything but going to the movies? <laughs> like, that's pretty incredible. I wonder if that's like the biggest set of blockbuster. We talked about how this is like the, the next evolution of the blockbuster year. Like, I wonder, has there been a Christmas with three movies of that height and of that fame all at the same time in one Christmas season? Yeah, I mean, and not only were they all huge hits like at the time, but all of those movies have become major elements of cinema history and have been hugely influential for 40 plus years now. Yeah, stood the test of time. They have indeed. They have indeed. Are there any other legacy elements of this movie that you want to mention, Jason? Well, Josh, as you know, uh, you had mentioned that uh, we've talked a lot about Travolta he did get the National Board of Review uh, uh, pick for Best Actor in 77. And Josh, not nearly as cool as that. Uh, Glee did a whole episode called Saturday Night Gleaver. So. Uh, yeah, Glee. That's oh, funny. I have something fun. Oh, did, okay. Did you know this is the first movie ever to use the term blowjob? I did not. But like mainstream wow. Hollywood movie. There had been right. blowjobs in Hollywood movies, including <laughs> one given to Travolta in Carrie. But... Uh, but this is the first one where some of the, no, just, just give me a blowjob. You know? Yeah, where they actually use the word. So, okay. well, you know, pioneering in so many ways, this give film. Me, I got these tight pants on. <laughs> give me a blowjob. Uh, I feel like your your Travolta impression and your Woody Allen impression are very similar. Travolta, it got way worse there. I can, Unless I start with like, what, what, you know, are you a good girl? Then it doesn't work at all. So. All right. So that's Saturday Night Fever, and that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. 
You can follow us on social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. And go for Jason.com. Uh, I would compare it to the later Travolta years, not the earlier Travolta years of websites. Um, and then we are at AwesomeMovieYear.com. Solid, serviceable website. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. You can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at Signalbleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, I'm going to do a quick plug for Wax Tracks Records, where on any given day, you might find me walking around with a stack of Saturday Night Fever soundtrack albums. Nice. We love Wax Tracks Records, and uh, it's weird that they won't sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, if you want to learn more about David Rosen's music and uh, get some bonus content, uh, including this episode, so you probably already signed up for it, but uh, we are on Patreon. Uh, by David Rosen with content from us and piecing it together and all rice, no beans. So check that out. Yeah, someone should throw that Patreon off the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. <laughs> oh. <laughs> thank you, Jason. <laughs> and thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.